0: You know, when, you know what time of year that I miss my parents and siblings the most? It's Christmas, right? Often during this time of um, supposed celebration, uh, it's, it's now that we can actually feel the, the loneliness, the, the, the loneliness, if you will. I, I really love being a pastor. I love being in the trenches with people. Um, I love being in, in situations where all the masks are off, all of the niceness is gone, all of the, uh, the pretense is, um, is has, has vanished and people are themselves whether they're hurt or they've hurt others, regardless there's something about the reality of ministry that I find um, really um, life-giving and it's often in those trenches that you see God at work, and he's doing amazing things. But also, because I spend so much time in the trenches, but um, I spend a lot more time there, way more than most often do, and then over time, to use that sort of army analogy, that military analogy, you get a sense of, really, of PTSD as a minister, You just live a thousand lives, you die a thousand deaths, you, you are with people in despair and struggle and in failure, and and often you take you take a lot of friendly fire, and so like a soldier returning home from war, there are times when I I just want to say you know, no one gets me. No one knows what I go through. You feel so alone. And I think sometimes at Christmas we can all, in our own story, in our own way, feel that way. You say you know, no one gets me. No one knows what it's like to have, to have gone through the things I've gone through. See, while for some Christmas is a time of with loved ones, and, and, some, and sometimes it can, really can be for a lot of us, for, a lot, for others of us, it's an incredibly lonely time. We're often alone and just feeling sad. We miss, especially this year, we miss loved ones. C.S. Lewis was uh, very distant from his father, all his life, and it was basically a strange, very painful relationship. And so because of that, at a young age, he was very close to his mom. But at age at age nine, he lost his mom. He was so close to her. He lost her. Later, he would write, he said, with my mother's death, all settled happiness. All that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my wife. There was to be much fun. There would be many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like the blameless. So we can feel alone in feeling sad this time of year. We can feel alone in feeling bad feel bad for others, we can feel bad for our own selves, things that we've done, mistakes that we've made, things that we've said and done that we can never undo. A sense of, what was I thinking? If I could only go back and do it differently. And that's the, uh, a, sad, or a, a sense of feeling bad that no one else can share, we feel lonely in it. So we can feel sad, we feel bad. And and when we are alone and feeling those ways, we wonder, often wonder, especially this time of year, where is God? Where is He? He's nowhere to be seen, right? He's invisible. And sometimes His invisibility makes us just wonder is He just really imaginary, right? the scriptures, especially the story of Christmas, gives us a very much needed answer to that question. In my loneliness, especially this time of year, where is God? What is he up to? What's what's he doing? Why is he invisible? Why isn't he here? I just want to give two very brief points this evening. Speaking to both God as one who is invisible, but also as God as one who is incarnate. When we're God who is unseen and a God who has come and is seen, who has himself a body. First, his, God's invisibility means that, listen to this, it means that he gets us like no one else. Again, sometimes I feel like no one gets me, and yet David in Psalm 39 says that because God is, precisely because he's invisible, precisely because God is spirit, he gets us. He understands us. He knows us, but he gets us like no one else does. And Psalm 139 is so beautiful. It says as, as a spirit, God gets us, gets us first and foremost in the day-to-day. It's so beautiful. Listen to these words, verses 1 through 3. He's not bored by us in the minutia of life. King David writes, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, when you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. In the minutia of life, in the routine, in the day-to-day, God gets us. Not only does he get us in the day-to-day, he gets us in depth. He's inside us. He's all around us. The psalmist continues, Before a word is on my tongue, you, O Lord, know it completely. Of times you just, you just can't seem to get it out. You feel like, I don't know how to express what's inside of me. My parents won't understand, my siblings won't understand, my kids won't understand, my coworkers, my classmates, they don't understand. But here it says, Before a word is off my tongue, you, O Lord, know it completely. He says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So he gets us, he gets us in the day to day. He gets us in in the in-depth, inside, knowing who we are. He gets us no matter the distance. Verses 7-11, through wherever we go, he's there, he's with us. Where can I go from your spirit, says David? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He gets us, as Spirit, he gets us in the day-to-day, in, in our very depths. He gets us not only in, in, in at, no, regardless of the distance that gets into this. He gets us, this is such a beautiful thing to me, he gets us even in the darkness. Verses 12-13 reads this, If I say, listen to this kids, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together, even in my mother's womb. See, it's precisely because God is spirit, because it's precisely because he's non-physical, that he can get us, he can understand us. I don't know how many of you you you, you have your I say you're married or you have various relationships with your siblings, and you think, why is it so hard to communicate? Why why do we always misunderstanding each Why is there always this happening? It's because there's a physicality. We're concrete physical humans. It's I got something that I want to say that's inside here, and somehow I've got to figure out a way of communicating and speaking in a, way, in a way that there's a shared world. A shared uh, group of like words, ideas, etc., that you also understand. But one thing I've learned from marriage is that Sarah and I excel at misunderstanding. Clearly, there's only one way to understand what I just said, right? I mean, what other way could there possibly be? And if there is another way, she will find it, and vice versa. Well, clearly she meant this. It was what else could it be, right? But it's just because but it's that physicality that actually limits, it limits us. And it's precisely God as spirit. It's that, that contrast of physical and non-physical in scripture. It's called flesh and spirit. Flesh being, listen to this, this is very important. Flesh is that which is limited, lifeless, inanimate. It's sort of like a puppet. It just sits there and you just have a puppet, it's just dead. And it needs someone, someone or something to come along and animate it with what's called spirit. okay. So flesh is seen as limited and lifeless, as fleeting, and usually in some way flawed. That's what flesh is. See, what is concrete is constrained in where it can be spatially, right? There's a sense of, of it can only be in one place at a time. Con- the flesh is concrete, it's, it, can, it can only be in one place, It can only be there for so long. It can only be, it can be limited in what it can know and what it can do. And so therefore a lot of, especially in Jesus' own day, a lot of philosophers of the time, like for example before him, some like Plato, the Neoplatonists of of Jesus' time, and many after him saw the, the flesh, the physical, as always fleeting and flawed spirit is limitless and life-giving. It's animating. It's unconstrained. It's enduring and empowering and animating. And there's, and there's one very important thing. spirit is not only animating and enduring, it's intimate. It's intimate. It's right through you. And that's exactly what Psalm 139 is about. It's about David celebrating God as a spirit, as one who gets us. He is one who is unconstrained, unlimited, enduring, empowering, animating, invading, invading the Holy Spirit, who enjoys maybe even an uncomfortable intimacy with David. See, locked in our prison of loneliness because of sadness, because of feeling sad or feeling bad, we ask, where is God? In Psalm 139, David says, in our prison of loneliness, he's there. He's there. He's in there. He's in there with you. He knows. He understands. And for David, God's unique invisibility leads to God's unique intimacy. So if he gets us, if he really gets us, if he's he's with us in our loneliness, We can do two things. We're able to do two things. First, we can praise Him. We can praise Him. In fact, elsewhere, David, listen to this. David praises God, he says, I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and you knew the anguish of my soul. God knows your affliction. He knows the anguish of our souls. Can you believe it? Listen to this. He cares for you more Then you care about yourself. So we can praise Him, but second, we can pray to Him. We can bring to Him all that is burdening us, all that no one else will understand. We can actually listen to this. We can name it. You can even name it out loud you pray and say, I am giving this to you. David in Psalm 55 says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. So in our loneliness, what, what, what's what's making us feel sad? What's making us feel so bad? Think about that and actually go to the Word of Prayer and give it to Him regularly, daily. Give, give this to Him. Lord, I give you my relationship with my child. Lord, I give you uh, my work situation. is overwhelming. Lord, I give to you my dis- dis- depression, despair that just won't go away. I can't carry it. Though we are locked in the prison of our own loneliness, God as Spirit gets us like no one else. With great compassion, He understands our temptations, our traumas, our trials, and even our betrayals. He understands us. Now listen, though. Just because you understand something, though, doesn't mean you've experienced it. Does that make sense? Understanding these things is one thing. Experiencing them is another, and that's where the incarnation comes in. On the one hand, God is Spirit who knows his inside and out, and yet it's it's this Christmas story. It's his incarnation It means that God not only gets us like no one else, but he goes before us like no one else. He is not only is he, is he in our prison of loneliness, not only does he, not only is he is he in there in the prison, he's been there in the prison. You see that? John 1.14 says the word. It says something that Plato, someone that the philosophers of, of Paul's day, of Jesus' day, would have just, it would have made no sense at all. He says the word became flesh. Like, what do you mean? Wait a minute. Oh, time out. He became we, he became He became fleeting, he became limited, he became something so pathetic. Why would he do that for? Why would he get rid of all his power? Why would he get rid of all of his prestige, glory, and and leave that which is pure spirit, and enduring, and become, and take on and enter in toward his weakness? John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. So again, recall that earlier contrast of spirit and flesh. Here, God is becoming that which is weak, that which is limited, that which is fleeting, that which is subject to all of the limitations and misery and struggles of life on earth. See, if you're familiar with either the Greek mythologies of the ancient world, or if you're familiar, familiar perhaps with some of the Hindu epics they call the Puranas. You'll see in those myths and in those stories, those epics, you'll see what are called avatars. An avatar is an avatar is a god who temporarily, you know, just sort of sort of a cameo appearance, appears in human form. But then they stop, they leave, and they go back, and they're no longer in human form. But the incarnation is fundamentally different. Jesus becomes fully human, and he becomes fully human forever. Think about that. Scriptures teach in a mysterious way that Jesus of Nazareth, the God, the Son, became Jesus of Nazareth and remains so for all eternity. So again, locked in our prison of loneliness, where we say no one can understand. We have in Psalm 139 a God whose spirit, who in his invisibility, gets us. We can say, he's in there. He's in there with you in the prison. But here in John 1.14, we have a God, we have one who's become flesh and actually say, listen, he's been here. He's really been here. And so if the Father's, listen to this, if the Father's invisibility calls us to praise him and to pray to him, casting our cares upon him, the Son's incarnation, calls us to do two things as well. One is to consider his life. I mean, how well do you know the life of Jesus? When's the last time you read the Greek Gospel? How well do you know his life? It calls us to consider his life because we're asked the question where do we find our sufferings in his story? <coughs> where do we find our sufferings in his story? Like, for example, so often in life, I, I feel like a failure. Huge. feel like a failure. I feel like, I haven't made any difference. Hey, what do I have to show for myself? And I look at the life of Jesus. And again and again in his life, it's just like he just, he just fails. And it's amazing how many times he's encounters with religious leaders, he's encounters various people, and they just leave him. He's encounters with a rich young ruler. And Jesus lays it out there. Hey, this is, he lays out hope with words of challenge. Ruler's like, I'm done, I'm out of here. My piece is out. Doesn't, people don't change. In fact, Jesus is overwhelmingly rejected. I think, mean, oh, can, wow, I can so identify with that. But a lot of times I feel like I'm always the bad guy. Like, you know, I am the bad guy. So why do I always get the role of the bad guy? And Jesus was constantly playing the role of the bad guy. Jesus comes as the answer to the world's problems, capital A. And he's treated as if he were the problem of all the. problems. <laughs> Of the world with a capital p everyone thinks that he's to blame he takes the fall and he did nothing wrong so first we're to consider his life and ask the question where do i find my suffering in his story but second we're to copy his life we are to be we are, to, we, are we are those who are called like him to constrain we're called to sacrifice what empowered, what enabled, what freed Jesus to enter into human form, to enter that constraint, was that he trusted his Father. He was like, You got this, right? Here I go. I'm, I'm laying aside all my power, all my majesty, and you're going to take care of me, right? You're going to bring me through all of this. And so we are to follow Jesus in constraint to follow Him into willing sacrifice, and to trust our Father He will care for us. So let me finish on here. When we are locked in the prison of our own loneliness, feeling sad, feeling so bad, God's invisibility means that He can get us like no one else. And it's, it's, it's the Son's incarnation, that means that He goes before us like no one else, that He has tasted, He has experienced. He knows concretely exactly what we have been through. Now, earlier we um, mentioned C.S. Lewis, how he his father, his, uh, his mother dies at age nine, and he speaks of it so beautifully. And I just want to close with these words, that. It is precisely in the areas where we feel most alone that God wants to meet us and that He wants to use us. So I want you to consider for 2021, when you let someone else, you take the risk, you let someone else into your loneliness. Brother or sister in the Lord, a trusted mother or father in the Lord, someone that you just feel, come to me. I'd love to listen to some ideas. My office is here for me. you. Meet over coffee or beer, wherever it is. I'm here to listen so that you will not be alone and show you, help you help and we'll, we'll see together prayerfully, tearfully, we'll see together how God wants to use the very, the very thing where you are most lonely, the thing that is makes you the most sad, the, the, the thing that makes you feel, the, the, the worst First, the thing that you regret the most, he wants to use that to meet you, to know his presence, to know his mercy, to know his welcome, to know his wisdom, and he wants to use you in the midst of it. Let me close with this: C.S. Lewis, having lost his mother, would go along to have many other struggles in life. Again, I mentioned his mom passed when he was nine or ten. He grew up in very harsh boarding school environments. In fact, there he probably experienced abuse that is not worth describing. In fact, Lewis would go on to witness much decline and death. He he lost a number of friends. He was in the Great War. In World War I, he lost numerous friends. Uh, he himself was severely wounded, carried shrapnel around uh, the rest of his life, shrapnel's body or around the rest of his life. He was painfully estranged, like I mentioned, neglected by his father. The overwhelming stress of providing ongoing care for a, for a, a friend a friend who died in the war, he had promised him to take care of his mother, I mean, his his mother was declining in her health, but he was constantly caring for her. And not only that, he's often caring for his brother Warney, who was a severe alcoholic. All of those responsibilities weighed down upon him, not to mention the fact that he was a tutor at Oxford. And then of course he lost his wife, Joy Davidman to cancer. All of those things happened in a time from right around 1940 to 1947. When Lewis was simply beyond, he was just at a loss. In fact, one day his brother, the alcohol, came home and found Lewis just, just passed out on the ground. He was just exhausted. But you know what? It would be during those treacherous years, some of the most treacherous of his life, between 1940 and 47, that Lewis would write his most enduring works. A little children's series called The Chronicles of Narnia. How could so much beauty emerge from so much pain? But when he sat down to write them, this is so amazing to me. When he sat down to write them, he said this. He 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 didn't know where the story was gonna go. All he knew was that there would be four children, and somehow a farm with a package under its arm going through a snowy wood, and a lamppost, and a white witch with a sl- on, a, on a sledge. And he had no idea yet that there would be a liar in the story. You now, so often we can see pieces of our life, we can see pieces of a story, and yet we can't yet see the liar. In 2021, I'm gonna ask you, Your loneliness will you let God meet you? Will you let the lion meet you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is that you can meet us in our pain. Oh Lord, there are some here who I cannot begin to begin to understand the loneliness that they feel, the sense of loss, Father of loved ones, the sadness, Lord, but also the sense in which they feel so bad, the regret that struggle, whatever it may be, oh Lord, please, you know their struggle, and I pray that they would draw near to you and that you would free them to draw near to family or friends or to a minister or church leader, Lord, who would be able to help them, to encourage them, to lead them in hope and wisdom. So, Father, please, hear these prayers. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.